0: All right, if you will, open up your uh, Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. One of the most amazing uh, natural sites I've ever visited uh, in my lifetime uh, has to be the Grand Canyon in the state of Arizona. I was there in the 1990s with my first wife. We were on a road trip. Uh, This is pre-kids. Uh, Going through Western America, we visited Colorado and Utah and Wyoming and Arizona and Nevada and New Mexico. And we drove many, many miles on that trip. And one of the legs that we did, uh, it was probably a a, a 10-day trip, I think. Uh, One of the legs began in Black Canyon, Colorado, which is a smaller version of the Grand Canyon. And uh, we traveled many, many uh, miles every day. And uh, uh, we landed in the camp there. Uh, we drove up at about 10 p.m. And we told the guy at the reception that uh, tomorrow we want to drive to the Grand Canyon. And uh, the, uh, the guy very confidently informed us that uh, we, you're never going to make it. He said it's 600 miles, uh, which is about 1,000 kilometers, uh, to the Grand Canyon. He said, you're not going to make it. And that did not deter us as we were a young couple. Uh, On the contrary, it motivated us. Uh, We said, we're going to make it. So it it became a challenge. And so we left early in the morning. We drove the entire uh, nine-hour journey, and we stopped at various sites along the way. And I, I always remember the journey because we're in the middle of the desert, and we were flying, I don't know, about 100 miles an hour or so. And we flew right into a flock of birds, And you got birds all over the windshield. Uh, I always remember that. Uh, But we did uh, arrive about midnight at the Grand Canyon. So it was pitch black, and uh, we set up the tent. We went straight to bed. And as we awoke, the sun was just rising, and we realized that we were camping very close to the edge of the Grand Canyon. Uh, Thankfully, we didn't go wandering in the night. And uh, when we looked outside the tent, we had this amazing view of the sun rising on the rim of the Grand Canyon. And it literally just took our breath away. It was uh, absolutely amazing. The Grand Canyon, for those of you who don't know, is about 1.8 kilometers deep. That's how deep it goes. And then it's about 15 kilometers wide and 450 kilometers long. And when the sun rises over the edge of that, it just highlights uh, all the beautiful colors that are found in the many layers of rock uh, that go all the way uh, down the walls. Now, when I see something like that, I sometimes put myself into the position of an unbeliever. And I try to imagine their conviction that all of this is just the result of an impersonal evolutionary process. If you take the Grand Canyon tour, uh, they act very intelligent, uh, and they'll tell you that the canyon is really the result of the Colorado River cutting into the rock over the past two billion years, rather than the result of a worldwide flood as described in the book of Genesis. Genesis. But when I hear that, I instinctively have this reaction in in my mind, uh, as you would as well, I'm sure, that just starts questioning their assertions. And I think of verses like Psalm 65, 8, the whole earth is filled with awe at your wonders. Or Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I'm so thankful that the words of Scripture have become part of my thinking like that, because whenever I hear the false thinking of men, I have the truth that both informs and corrects uh, their philosophies and assumptions and outright lies. But of course, once you grasp then the truth of creation, a follow-up question then Uh, needs to be asked about the relationship of the God who made all of this to us and to the world in the future. I mean, is there a connection between this awesome being and us? Well, the Bible's answer to that is in terms of a king and a kingdom. You want to remember that Scripture teaches a right theology of history. History is not evolutionary. It's not a series of recurring cycles. History is taught in the Word of God as being the unfolding of the kingdom of God. Now, you can read about uh, the, the, the key passage of that in Daniel 7, uh, which reveals the scene in which the uh, Ancient of Days is seated on a throne. And he's being served by myriads of intelligent beings. And then one like a son of man approaches him and he is given a kingdom of which there will be no end. Well, the opening book of the New Testament picks up that truth then and it really runs with it. And I want to ask you this morning to turn to Matthew 9, if you will. Matthew 9. Last time in Matthew, we began a book survey. Uh, We are trying to understand the overall message of this book before we begin looking at it uh, in a verse-by-verse exposition. And you may remember that after the introduction, the book alternates between stories and teaching. And the first section of stories is chapters 2 to 4, and it's really stories about the king. Uh, In the opening story regarding the birth of Jesus Christ, you remember his earthly father is addressed as the son of David, David the king. In the second story, the Magi come asking, uh, where is he who is born king of the Jews? Uh, Thirty years later, John the Baptist is beginning to announce that the kingdom of heaven has arrived, it has drawn near And when they imprisoned John, Jesus picks up the same message. Repent. Change your mind, because the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. In chapter 4, it says that he went through all Galilee, preaching the good news of the coming of that kingdom. Chapters 2-4, to stories of the king. Now, At that point, the question that a reader might have is this. Well, what did that kind of preaching about the kingdom sound like? Well, the next section of Matthew chapters 5 to 7 is the first section of teaching, and it reveals to us what kingdom preaching was like. Remember that? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, For yours is the kingdom. But I say to you, except your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will in no way enter into the kingdom that I'm preaching about. And when the Lord finished with that sermon, or what we call the Sermon on the Mount, the people uh, marveled because he preached with authority. That is a term that has reference to regal rights. In other words, he sounded like someone who had the right to say all of those drastic things and issue uh, the serious warnings that are found in that sermon. I mean, they had never heard anyone preaching like that before, but you know, this guy sounded like he had the right to do so. But of course, as we noted last time, talk is empty unless it can be confirmed by deeds. So what Matthew does in the next two chapters, which is the second uh, section of stories, is that he brings together a series of miraculous works that confirm those authoritative words. He pulls these stories out of the Lord's Galilean ministry when he's going through all of their cities, and villages preaching about the kingdom. From that period of time, he offers uh, samples of miraculous works in chapters 8 through 9. And again, the people marvel that God had given such authority. Look at the end of chapter 9. Where we, uh, this is where we left off last time. I want you to notice the response of the crowds throughout that area. Look at verse 26. Remember that uh, you know, one of these miracles uh, involved power over the realm of death. He raised Jairus' daughter. So verse 26, the report of this went out into all that land. After he healed two blind men. Note verse 31. But when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. After he healed a demon-possessed man. End of verse 33. And the multitudes marveled. Saying it was never seen like this in Israel. So, what becomes obvious is that Matthew is telling us that in those days, the instinctive response of people was unique. I mean, they'd never had this kind of reaction to any other teacher before. And so, by word of mouth, they were carrying the news about him throughout the country. So it's no wonder then that Matthew ends this series of stories with what he says in verse 35. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues, notice this, and preaching the same message, the good news, the gospel of the kingdom, and then he's backing it up by healing every sickness and every disease among the people. In other words, his kingdom works are again being confirmed by his authoritative uh, works. But then in verses 36 to 38, you have a transition. Because now it becomes apparent that all of these people following Jesus, well, they're going to need some shepherding. So he instructs his followers in verse 38 to pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers, into his harvest. And then read right into chapter 10, and when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power. Now it's the same word for authority, just translated differently. And now we enter into the second major teaching section in the Gospel of Matthew. It consists of chapter 10. And you can see that if you, turn, uh, you just turn ahead a chapter and glance at chapter 11, verse 1. Now, you remember uh, last time we were tracing a few sub-themes throughout Matthew. So at the end of the first teaching section, the Sermon on the Mount, you remember that it says, when Jesus had ended these sayings. That's a little formula that marks the end of all of the five teaching sections And the next time you see that formula is then in chapter 11, verse 1. Look at it. It says, when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples. There's the conclusion of the second teaching section in chapter 10. The third time you're going to see that formula will be in 1353 after the third teaching section. And we'll get to that in just a moment. Let's go back to chapter 10 so we can understand uh, how the Lord's ministry is beginning to progress. All right, he's, he's, aroused, he's aroused public attention throughout Galilee. The crowds are following him everywhere. With the multiplication of followers, there's a need to multiply workers. So pray the Lord of the harvest that he will do it. And then immediately, the Lord provides the answer to his own prayer. By investing his own authority in 12 other men. You see that? In verse 1, he gave the 12 the same kind of power or authority that he was exercising. It says, power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness." And all kinds of disease. And if you're wondering about who these guys are, the names of the twelve apostles follows verses two to four. Now, of course, uh, we've also been tracing the theme of authority in Matthew's gospel, and here it is again. You remember that they heard him as one having authority. The miracles uh, caused people to marvel at his authority. Now you can see his authority his power invested in the twelve. And the next time we find this theme will be in chapter 21, verse 23. Now, if you look at chapter 10, verse 7, you can see the message that he entrusts to these men. And this will not surprise you. Verse 7, he says, And as you go preach, saying what? Well, it's the same thing John announced. The same thing Jesus has been preaching. It's that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is drawn near. That's their message. What's going to be their ministry? Verse 8 heal the sick, cleanse the lepers. I mean, look at this one. Raise the dead, cast out demons. This now marks the highest level. Of anybody's power. Uh, You know, I mean, it's one thing uh, to be, for example, a famous musician. It's one thing to be a widely acclaimed intellect or a highly skilled athlete. But it's another level entirely to somehow have the power to give your ability to another person or to 12 persons or to any number of people that you choose. Well, our Lord does it on this occasion, and He does it not in order to elevate these men, but in order to communicate His own uniqueness, and the height of His power, the height of His rights over people, and the fact that He can actually invest His regal rights in anyone to whom He chooses. Now as those men go about with that message the kingdom is drawn near let me ask you in what sense had the kingdom of heaven drawn near well it had drawn near in the arrival of who of the king right can't you see it you know, listen to what he's saying watch what he does And now look at his followers' powers. And as they go, what is the objective that he has in mind for all of this? What's his objective? Well, you know, many who study the life of Christ entirely miss this point. In fact, I'm sure that somewhere in this city today or uh, somewhere in Australia, there is preaching going on that is going to involve. Uh, talking about the miracles of Jesus. But the application of those messages will be that because he did it in the past century for someone way back then, okay, well now you can claim your own personal miracle from him today. Right? So you want, what do you need? You need money? You need a bigger house? You need healing in your body? Well, just name it. Claim it. God will do it for you. He'll do a miracle for you. And those people are entirely missing the point of Jesus' miracles. When you read the miracles of Jesus, you need to remember that those diseases had been around for thousands of years. I mean, they're There'd been lepers around for thousands of years, and the one that Jesus healed in Matthew 8 is only the second recorded healing of leprosy since Naaman. In other words, these diseases, these demon-possessed people and so on, were chosen by God in that period of time in our Lord's earthly ministry, not primarily so that God can... You know, relieve people's physical problems, but primarily in order that his son, with all of his regal authority, might be displayed before those people. That was his purpose. So what was the ultimate objective for doing these things? What was his ultimate objective in empowering his followers to do the same? Look a little further in the chapter to verse 32. Here's the response he's looking for. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. What is the objective of Jesus' kingdom ministry? It is to bring people to the point where they will openly confess Him to be who He claimed to be and who He is, in in fact, (laughs) who He really is. I mean, the objective was not to create a whole nation of people who had depended upon Him to work daily miracles and relieve their physical and material needs. That was not His purpose for coming. It was to persuade them of his identity. He came and he, he called himself the Son of Man. Well, that's that title, remember, that's taken from Daniel 7. In other words, when, you know, when, when Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man, he's not trying to tell people, hey, I'm a man. Don't you understand? I'm a human being. I'm the Son of a Man. No, he took that title because it was coming from prophetic Scriptures. He was referring to the one person whose kingdom would be over all and who would reign forever. So he called himself the Son of Man. He did so nearly 80 times in the Gospels. It was his favorite self-designation. In fact, he used that expression for himself more times than all of the others combined. Now what he wants is people coming to the conviction that he is speaking the truth when he refers to himself in that way. And he says, Whoever confesses me as such before men... I will confess before my Father in that future day when all the world will finally bow the knee and recognize who I am. I will recognize you in that day. But then notice his warning in the next verse, verse 33, But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven in that day. In other words, his objective is to bring people to confess him before it is too late. Now, there's a lot of obstacles that people bring up to avoid confessing Christ. Uh, You remember that when he ended the Sermon on the Mount, he warned that this confession had to be marked by an integrity of life, a change of life. He closed that sermon, he said, well, you know, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but only he who does the will of my Father. And as we all know, there are many, many empty professions that people will make today. And it's easy to say, Jesus is my Lord and my Savior. It doesn't cost you anything. Anybody can say that, right? But in order to be a true follower of Jesus... That, that confession with the mouth must be marked by what he was calling for, a real repentance, a total change of mind. When I was a youth pastor in North Carolina, I remember talking with the dad of a young man who was attending our youth group. Uh, you know, he was the Southerners they get, you know, Southerners, he's chewing tobacco, He's wearing overalls, you know. So I went to see this guy, and as we talked, he assured me that he was quite happy with his son attending the church. He had no issues with Jesus and the Bible. And, but he said, I'm not interested in, you know, Jesus Christ saving me. I'm not interested in coming to church myself. And when I asked him why, you know, he kind of spat the juice, tobacco juice out, you know. And he said, well, you know, Sunday is NASCAR day. So they talk in the South. And I take my truck down to the track and I watch NASCAR. Uh, and then he said, you know, if I become a Christian, I won't be able to go to NASCAR. And he just can't give that up. Well, let me pause to say for a moment that if you are truly Southern, and I love the Southern. I was Southern myself for 14 years. If you're truly southern and you live in the Charlotte region, you are a huge NASCAR fan. Uh, NASCAR is a car race that came into being uh, back in the days of the Moonshiners. You know Moonshiners? Uh, they would, uh, the Moonshiners would beef up their cars in order to outrun the police. And so they raced their cars around and around, and it eventually developed into a professional sport. You can imagine that. And the NASCAR Hall of Fame is actually located right there in Charlotte, North Carolina. It's about 30 minutes from the church where I pastored. So, half the South go to the NASCAR races every Sunday uh, for 10 months of the year. And they have these tailgate parties, and lots of beer, and tobacco, and hot dogs. And this guy was not going to give that up in order to become a Christian. I want to ask you something. Could a person truly be a Christian and go to a NASCAR race on a Sunday? Yes or no? You don't have to answer out that. It's okay. Yes! <laughs> you might be surprised at that. Uh, in fact, you know, we had people that would come to church in NASCAR branded clothing. And uh, they were heading to the races right after the closing prayer. Uh, I'm not raising the question of whether that's the thing to do, but I am raising the question of whether it would be possible for a truly, genuinely regenerated person, a kingdom citizen, can they watch NASCAR? Can they go to the cricket? Can they watch a rugby match on a Sunday? Is that possible? Yes, of course. And it's possible for a true Christian to do a great many things on a Sunday that he really should not do if it means he can't attend church. Now, let me ask the question in this way Would it have been possible for that man to come to Christ and to be saved without dealing with that issue and yielding to God on that point? Yes or no? Absolutely not. Because in that man's life, that was his dearest idol. And he was communicating to me that regardless of what he thinks about the Bible and Christ and salvation, and even if he acknowledges that he needs to be saved, well, that racetrack and those cars are more important to me, and that's why I won't give my life to Christ. I mean, he demands too much for me to do that. In other words, when the twelve were invested with authority and they went out preaching, their objective was not just a confession, but one that came with the repentance that John and the Lord were already calling for. And for many people today, as it was in their day, the obstacle Is going to be some idol of the heart that they will not unseat in order to make Christ the Lord of their life. Now, it may not be something as superficial as a hobby or sports or some activity on a Sunday. The real roots of the difficulty for some people may be what the Lord warns about in the next verses. Look at verse 34 and following. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Well, now how are the people going to understand that? Are we going to have a revolution now? No, because he's talking about this kind of sword. Verse 35, for I've come to set a man against his father. And I think about that for a moment. A daughter against her mother. Really? A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. I mean, what is he talking about? Well, it works this way when people are confronted with the claims of Christ and his kingdom. Because he says they're going to find out that their enemies will now be those of his own household. Now, why is that? Because as yet, the members of their household have not yielded to the claims of Christ. And keep in mind, of course, that Uh, He's he's talking to a Jewish audience. And to this day, among those Jews who reject Jesus as the Messiah, this becomes an an issue of total severance from the family if anybody received Jesus in that way. I mean, you're not part of the family anymore. Totally cut off. So in verse 37, look at the claim that the Lord makes. He who loves father or mother more than me When it comes to that choice, if you're going to love your father or your mother or those who are closest to you, if that's going to be your idol, and you're going to love them more than you love Jesus, well, that one is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Someone says, well, how can he call for that kind of love? Well, you have to remember the point that Matthew is making repeatedly in this book. What's he saying? Well, this is not an ordinary person. This is the Lord of all. He is the King. His kingdom includes all the nations. That includes all of the peoples. That includes you and your loved ones. And someday, all of their knees will bow. All of their tongues will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The question is this, is it going to happen now in order to receive mercy? Or then, when they're trembling under the terrible prospect of impending judgment. I want to remind you that you're doing no favors to your loved ones when you refuse to come to Christ because you're afraid of what their reaction will be. If you truly love your father, your mother, your son, your daughter, if you love those who are closest to you physically, then you will set the example by becoming a member of Christ's kingdom. Because you will help to persuade them to do what you have done so that they also might experience the mercy of God. Don't choose any earthly human being over the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of God. Of glory. Yield yourself to Him alone, and you will find that He will use you to love your family through you. The objective of this ministry in Matthew 10 was to make citizens of the kingdom from all of these people who were experiencing His miracles firsthand. Now, look at chapter 11, verse 1. Now, it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples. Now, what you have now in chapters 11 to 12 is the third major section of stories. And with 13 people, right, Jesus and the apostles, they're spreading out through the region of Galilee, they're preaching in this way, they're working miracles. What would you expect everybody's response to be to that? Well, What Matthew is going to do now is give you some samples of people's responses. That's what chapters 11 and 12 consist of. And you can see it in passage after passage. It's responses to the king. For example, remember John sitting in prison? Look at verse 2. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? So what's apparent is that at this point, even John the Baptist is confused and in doubt. Now that's amazing, you remember? Because he was the one who came preaching, repent because the kingdom of heaven is drawn near. He was the one who pointed at Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He also said, I saw and bear witness that this is the Son of God. And then he told about the time when he baptized Jesus and the Holy Spirit came on him like a dove. Well, now the same man, the most outspoken of those identifying Jesus as the King, and he's asking, are you really the one who's coming? Now, the background of this, let me just make a note here, is the fact that at this point, Jesus is not doing what John had prophesied. You remember... Uh, that John's prophecy included uh, judgment and fire. And he talked about him coming with his winnowing fork in his hand. He's going to cast out the chaff and burn it with unquenchable fire. Well, that not happened yet. Now, of course, John's message was definitely from God, but that time of judgment had not yet come in the plan of God. It was at, the, at that moment, it was going to be mercy rather than judgment and fire. Well, this is confusing to John. So the first response that Matthew notes for us is that even the one who was the most informed about Jesus at this point is confused about the nature of his ministry. Look at uh, at verse 16. Here's the second window into people's responses. The Lord is speaking of the generation to which he's witnessing. And he says, but to what shall I liken this generation? And then he gives a little metaphor. He says, Well, it's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions. And we all know how fickle and impulsive children can be. You know, they call out to one another to do this or do that. And you know, if the children, other children don't do exactly what they're told to do, then you know those who call out, well, they get angry. They pout about it. Well, Jesus said it worked like this with his coming to this generation. He said, "You know, I mean, John the Baptist came, he's wearing weird clothes, and he's eating locusts, wild honey, who does that? And the people said, man, this guy's got a demon, verse 18. I mean, nobody can live like that unless, you know, you're mentally deranged or something. Who's this guy? Well, then the Son of Man comes, and he eats, and he drinks, and he goes to weddings, and he enjoys food and wine, and they said about him, well, this guy is a glutton, the man's a drunkard. That's how I liken this generation. I mean, they're fickle, demanding, impulsive children. They complain. They're not getting what they want. Now look at verse 20. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done. Uh, think of those cities. Think of the miraculous works that Matthew has recorded for us. I mean, he's healing the sick. He's casting out demons. He's raising the dead. Well, now he has to reprimand these cities because they did not repent. That's what John was calling for. That's what Jesus was preaching. But they didn't do it. They were impenitent. That was the city's response. Turn to chapter 12 and the next response. Our Lord and His disciples are going through the fields. They're picking grain. They're eating it. Verse 2, the Pharisees saw it. They said to Him, Look! Your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. They're fault finding. At the end of verse 10, and I'm just sampling a few verses here. At the end of the verse, it says that they might accuse Him. They're accusatory. At the end of verse 14, the Pharisees went out and plotted against Him. How they might destroy Him. Verse 24, when it came to the casting out of demons, the Pharisees said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub the ruler of the demons. And then they committed what the Lord warned about as the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And Let me just pause for a moment to explain that briefly. What's apparent here is that even his opponents, they could not explain away the power. I mean, obviously, you know, miraculous deeds are taking place. You can't deny that. So what they have to do to get around his power is to assign the power to some source other than God. They have to you know, discredit the miraculous. And the way they do that is by assigning the source to the demonic. And that is what the Lord is calling blasphemy against the Holy Spirit because the Bible tells us that he, uh, when He did miracles, He was doing it through the power of the Holy Spirit. It was permanently residing on him. But again, Matthew is just giving us these responses. Look at verse 38, same chapter. Last response from the scribes and Pharisees he's going to give us. And some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. What? I mean, you've got to be kidding. After all that's been taking place, you guys want a sign? Uh, what do you think you've been seeing all this time? That's why the Lord responds as He does in verse 39. But He answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That was a prophecy that was coming later. It was going to involve him being in the earth for three days and three nights and then emerging like Jonah emerging from the fish hundreds of years earlier. Now, I just want to mention that when you read this passage and Jesus says no sign will be given, you've got to remember that the background to his comment is not a refusal to demonstrate something miraculous about himself. He's only refusing to do it any further with these religious leaders apart from the sign of His resurrection in the future. But you can see what's happening in chapters 11 and 12. In story after story, Matthew is showing to us that people's response to His authority was varied. They're confused. They're fickle. They're impenitent. They're fault-finding and accusatory and conspiratorial and murderous and blasphemous or sign-seeking. In other words, it was everything but what you would expect from people who were favored in the way that these people were favored with the coming of the Son of Man into their very midst. it all ends in chapter 12, verse 50, where our Lord returns to this business of doing the will of the Father, and He motivates them by saying this, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother, What a wonderful prospect that is. When you consider the possibility of, of confessing Jesus Christ with your mouth and yielding to the will of God, remember that in spite of the cost, it makes you like a brother, like a sister to the King of glory, Jesus Christ. Yeah, I can assure you that you have no prospect like that on this earth. But this person will favor you with the closest of all relationships if you will love him more than mother, father, brother, or sister and confess him before men and give yourself to do the will of God. This individual will make you like his brother or sister. Now, that brings me to our last point which is the next section of teaching. Maybe you have... The heading in your Bible already, the heading in my Bible says this Jesus teaches, but now he teaches in a new form. He teaches in parables. And this will run through chapter 13. What is the subject of these parables? Let me show you. There are seven of them. We're just going to note the opening statement of the last six, and I'll come back to the first one in a moment. Look at verse 24. Here's the second parable. Another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like... Look at verse 31. Introduction to the third parable. Another parable he put forth to them saying the kingdom of heaven is like. Look at verse 33. Another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like... Look at verse 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like... Look at verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like... The seventh parable, verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like. That's pretty obvious. Clearly, the subject of the parables is the nature of the kingdom. He's giving you a comparison. The kingdom of heaven is like. It can be compared to something. That's the point of a parable. Somebody said that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's taking something common on earth and using it as an illustration of what God's kingdom is like. Its nature, its conditions, and its reception. And that's where the first parable comes in. The first parable, beginning in verse 3, is where the Lord explains the reception that kingdom preaching should receive. Right? We just finished two chapters. We're sampling people's responses All right? If you were one of the twelve, what would you be thinking? I mean, you know, these people want to sign. I mean, they they actually think he's doing this in the power of the devil? They're acting childish. I mean, if you were one of the twelve, you would have to be confused about all of these responses because this isn't at all what you were expecting with the coming of the Messiah. In fact, the 12, they might have been just as confused as John the Baptist was at this point. So in the very first parable, Jesus says, look, it's like this. It's like a man going out and scattering seed. And as he does, the seed falls on different kinds of soil. Some of it falls on a hard surface where the soil is all compacted. It's also like a footpath on the edge of a field. So the seed lies there, the birds, well, they come along and they snatch it up, and you know you've seen that happen. Some of that seed falls in a soil that appears to be good, but uh, what nobody knows is that underneath the soil there's a large shelf of rock. Well the rock you know heats up the soil, causes those seeds to spring up quickly, but just as quickly you know it withers in the heat, because the roots are weak, don't have any depth. And some of that Seed is sown among seeds of weeds and thorns. And when it springs up, the thorns and the weeds also spring up. They choke out the new plants. But finally, there is some good soil. And even then, though, you have different levels of production. Some of it's 30-fold. Some of it's 60-fold. Some of it's 100-fold. Now look at verse 11. What I'm talking about here is what's called the mysteries of of the kingdom of heaven. When I tell you that story and all these other stories about the kingdom, these are the mysteries of the kingdom. These are God's own secrets that He is now revealing. So you can see that the first story is the Lord's explanation of what is happening in the reception of this news. In other words, if you're confused about people's responses in the previous chapters, just look at the sower. It's just like that. Doesn't all end up in good soil. Now, what I'm interested in at this point is why Jesus uses so many parables. And I I want to ask this question because that's the question the disciples were asking. In verse 10 it says that when he gave the first parable, the disciples came to him, they asked him, well, Why are you talking in parables? I mean, what's the purpose for this? Well, let me tell you what I would think and what you may have thought was the right answer to that question. It's basically our assumption that the reason you tell stories to people is because stories are easier to understand, right? Uh, I mean, maybe the people's problem is, you know, they just don't get it. So let's... Let's tell them a story. Let's get it down on their level. Let's put the cookies on the bottom shelf as they talk about, you know. But how would it work? Let me just just imagine this for a moment. Let's just say I came to the pulpit this morning and I said, all right, our message today was to have a story. A uh, farmer went out to sow and he scattered some seed and some fell on the footpath and the bird snatched it up. Some of it fell on uh, ground had rocks underneath and so it germinated very quickly and as soon as the sun hit it, you know, the, 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 the plants withered and, and died. You know, some of it fell on ground where there was weeds, and the weeds sprang up and choked it out. But some of the seed, well, it fell on some good ground, and, uh, the, but there was a variation in the harvesting of the seed, and some of it was 30 and 60, and some of it yielded 100. All right, let's bow our heads and pray. We're done. How would you feel about that? Assuming you'd never heard the story before. What if we came back the next week and I said, okay, our sermon today, we're going to have another story. I remember the guy that had the field and you know, the seeds sprang up in the good ground. Well, let me tell you, you know, while that guy was asleep, uh, one of his enemies came along and he scattered seeds of weeds in the soil. And Later on, uh, you know, the weeds came up and the servants went out and uh, you know, they, it was apparent to them that there was wheat and there was weeds growing next to each other. And so they said, well, let's get rid of the weeds. And the owner said, no, no, don't do that. You pull up the weeds, you might pull up some of the wheat. So let's just leave it alone. Let's bow our heads down and pray. We're done. I'm sure that this kind of preaching would generate a lot of questions. But I'm also sure that you wouldn't understand what I'm talking about because nobody gets an illustration like that unless it's what? Unless it's explained. But what is remarkable is that Jesus doesn't give any explanations, at least not to the crowd. That's why the disciples come to him and they say, why are you doing this? I mean, the people are already having trouble getting the message. They don't understand. They need some explanation. I mean, you can see how they're responding. But in verse 11, he answered and said to them, well, because... It is being given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it is not being given. You say, what? I thought, I thought they were supposed to understand. I thought that was going to be the will of God. Why tell them anything at all? If the point isn't that they would understand. Well, he says there's a reason why I'm not explaining anything to them. Next verse. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Verse 13, therefore I speak to them in parables. Now, we won't go any further with the explanation, but what I want to focus on is verse 12, where he says, Whoever has, to him more will be given. All right? What did the twelve have? that the crowds didn't have. Look at the next line. Whoever does not have. What did the crowds not have that the twelve did have? Because that is the difference between them. In fact, that is the reason why the twelve are getting more and the crowds are not. Well, I think this can be easily understood if you glance down at verse 16. He says, but blessed are your eyes, for they they what? They see, and your ears, for they what? Hear. What they saw were his works, what they heard were his words. So what is apparent is that you can have the same people seeing the same things, hearing the same words, some of those people see, some of those people hear, while well, in contrast, some of those people are blind, and some of those people are deaf, and yet it's exactly the same sights and sounds. you believe that? But we have to accept it because Isaiah prophesied it. There's a passage in Isaiah 6 that we love, you know, when... Isaiah is commissioned. We often dwell on what Isaiah saw, this exalted view of the Lord on his throne. Uh, If you were in Friday night's message, Dr. Lawson opened his message with Isaiah 6. But have you ever noticed what the commission actually said? The commission is quoted here in this passage in verse 14. And in the case of the multitudes, that prophecy in Isaiah 6 is being fulfilled. Here it is. Hearing you will hear. See, they really are hearing. And shall not understand. And seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn, so that I should heal them. Our Lord is quoting this prediction in Isaiah to make the very point that people can hear and be deaf, and they can see and be blind, and yet other people sitting right next to them on the same pew They can both see and perceive. I mean, it's loud and clear for them. And those people, the Lord said, they get more. More of what? Well, people who really see and hear get this. Look at verse 11 again. It has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom. Now, here is a great warning for us. How many people do you think are like Herod Agrippa? Agrippa had the privilege, many years later, of hearing the greatest of the apostles share the gospel with him. Imagine what that was like. How many people are like that who hear the gospel and their heart is moved to a certain point where they can say, as Agrippa said, Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian and yet the man never did. They are the people who counted the cost of repenting of their values, of smashing their idols, of changing the direction of their life, but they will not do it in order to make Jesus Christ the Lord of their life. Well, as a result, there's this gradual blinding of their eyes and deafening of their ears So that they cease to see and hear what has been opened to them and now their spiritual perception is shutting down because they have walked away from the light for so long. Dear people, we need to reckon with the penalty of refusing the matchless privilege of what God has given us in the Bible. Have you considered that the vast majority of people on the earth this morning, perhaps, perhaps the person sitting next to you are described in Scripture as sitting in deep darkness. And you know what? They really are. You might be in darkness even as you sit in a service like this. You may have refused the light of truth for so long that God has gradually formed cataracts over your spiritual eyes and now you just can't see it anymore. But to those of us who have accepted the King and we see the light, blessed are your eyes. Blessed are your ears. Because you truly perceive and hear what God has to say. And now, it's being given to you to know more and more and more of Jesus Christ and His kingdom. And in the end, in verse 53 it says, Now it came to pass... When Jesus had finished these parables. There's that little formula we've been looking at, remember? The next time you'll see it is chapter 19, verse 1. But when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. Verse 54, when he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom? That's the wisdom of his words. And these mighty works. In other words, it's the same thing all over again. Here's a revelation of the king and the kingdom in his words and his works. And yet their response, verse 55 is, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? His brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, his sisters. Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor. In other words, He'll have honor everywhere except in his own country and in his own house. Now, he did the same thing. He withdraws. Right? In giving parables, he withdrew the teaching. In the next verse, he withdraws the works. It says he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Man, this is such a warning for everyone He's had the opportunity to see And hear the teaching of the Lord Jesus and His authority. But then they take offense at Him and what He says. He demands too much of me. But praise God if your eyes truly see. Praise God if your heart really knows. Because you have yielded to the King of glory. Let's bow for prayer. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I don't want to give a chance for reflection this morning. Nobody knows the day or the hour of their death, but I can say this life is short. So, have you ever confessed with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you done it before others? Jesus said, He who confesses me before men, it's an open confession. I will confess Him before my Father who is in heaven. In other words, you cannot be a secret disciple. At some point, you've got to open your mouth and declare your allegiance to the King. Have you confessed Him with your mouth that He is the Lord of your life? And then secondly, is that confession confirmed by the fact that you've yielded your will to Him? That you are now a follower of of Jesus Christ. Now it doesn't mean you live a sinless life. That's not possible for anybody on this side of heaven. But it does mean that you want to be. You want to do what's right. You want to be holy. You don't want anything to be in your life that is more important than Jesus Christ. So have you confessed him? Have you yielded your will to him? You know, there are at least two people in this room who know exactly where you stand with God. You and God. So how, how is it with you in that relationship? Is there anybody here who would say, you know, this is the first time I've really understood this. You know, my, my eyes see it. My heart knows it. I just can't refuse Him any longer. I'm afraid of being blinded and deafened. I, I know this is true. And I need to yield myself to it. If there's someone like that, and maybe you've attended church for a long time, don't put it off any longer. But talk to the Lord in your heart. Just tell Him you believe. And tell Him that by His grace and power, you are going to yield your life to Him starting right now. You're going to be a true follower, a brother or sister of Jesus Christ. Will you do that? I'd like to talk to you if you would. If you let us know, myself, Pastor Jesse, we'd be more than happy to talk with you and help you in making that decision. Father God, we thank you For your word, I thank you for the revelation of the King and the Kingdom in the Gospel of Matthew. Father, open the eyes of any here who are blind and help us to walk in the light of the truth, both in our confession and in the yielding up of ourselves to you. We love you, Father, and we thank you for this matchless privilege of being your children, We pray that you would save those who know us through us, that you would use us, and that your gospel would be strong in their lives. In Jesus' name, amen.